welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago. As I mentioned earlier, to those of you who are unfamiliar with me and haven't seen me and don't know me, I'm Michelle Jones and I'm the pastor of spiritual formation for Imago Day, as well as a pastor of global outreach. And on occasion, I put my arms around prayer. I want to begin by saying this is my first time speaking here at this place, and I'm so happy to be here. You got a nice big old room and you've almost filled it up, but I want to begin by talking to the elephant in the room, and I want to start by telling two stories. The first is it happened many, many years ago, 25, 26 years ago. I was on a plane on my way to Israel. And as I was flying, you know, as we're wont to do on long flights, everything gets quiet. And I struck up a conversation with a stranger. He was a guy from one of the states that are square in the middle of the country that starts with an M. I can't remember which. But we started talking. And this was after I knew that I was called to ministry, but before I had ever gotten my first job in ministry. And somehow the conversation rolled around and entered on on calling. And I mentioned that I, you know, knew that I was called to pastor, knew that I was called to teach and to preach. And without preamble, he just said, you know, God doesn't call women to preach. He doesn't call women to pastor. And the thought that was in my very human brain was to just, like, get my Bible from under the seat in front of me and just let him have it. Because we're human and because we get upset and because we think that the goal is to simply have the argument out until one of us agrees with the other one. But the Holy Spirit stopped me and it occurred to me to ask him a favor. And I just said to him, then I need you to do something for me. I need you to pray for me. Because here's the thing. If God didn't call me to this, he will let me know because he knows that I want to do what he wants me to do in this life. And he'll either call me, stop me, pull my coattails, or he'll open doors that no man can shut and shut doors that no man can open. But what was most important was that this man and myself were on the same side because we both love Jesus. And so it was important not to leave the conversation because we both love Jesus. The first church was not comprised of people who agreed on all of the non-essentials. It was comprised of people who very much did not agree on the non-essentials, but agreed that Jesus was Lord and agreed that he loved us and that he came and that he died and that he rose. So the Jews did not require that the Gentiles get circumcised and the Gentiles did not require that the Jews ate certain things that they were not allowed to eat, but they were a church 
They were a church together. The lion's share of the New Testament will actually attest to just how often Paul had to tell people, I know you don't agree, but let's love and let's be together. Which brings me to my second story. But before I get there, I want us to just remember that in our loving, that when we have these discussions and when we have these arguments and when we post on social media and when we talk about these, these theological discussions, I want us to remember that there are people on the other end of those discussions, that there are human beings on the other end of those discussions, of those comments, of those words that you have to say. And so when you look at me and you say to me, God does not call women to preach or he does not call women to pastor, what you're saying to me is that the 25 plus years of my life doing this means nothing in the kingdom. And I don't want you to agree with me. I just want you to know that when you disagree, that I'm on the other end of your comments. And so when somebody says that, this is a power grab or that we're just trying to do things, you know, just because we're disobedient. I don't know about anybody else, but I don't feel more powerful up here. I feel less powerful. That God's strength is made perfect while I'm weak up here. And then that brings me to my second story. And that was being in a church where they had a guest preacher come and preach. And he was maybe about five foot four, three. He was a teeny tiny guy. And you could tell that his shirt, I mean, his, his shirt was like his cuffs were down to here. And he was, he was awkward and his sermon was a mess. And I remember sitting there, and again, this is after I knew I was called, before I'd had my first job, and I was thinking, gosh, what a waste of time. Clearly this dude was, you know, being done a favor by somebody to be up there preaching because he was sad and he was pitiful. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I just wasted so much time just being in there listening to this little guy just preach this thing and butcher the word of God. So on my way home, I remember the Holy Spirit saying to me, well, if you preach that sermon, what would you say? So I got home and I got out my Bible, and I got out my word studies, and I got out my, my commentaries and everything, and I, I wrote this spectacular sermon. And I was so proud of myself. I mean, because I broke that thing down. It was so good. And put it out there and said, bless it, Lord. And the Holy Spirit said, if you were looking at me and not looking at him, you would have heard this at church. And the time that you wasted, you wasted writing this sermon at home because I would have told you that. If you had not been looking at this man and what he looked like and what he talked like and how he sounded and how different he was and how he wasn't what you were used to. Because God can use and does use everybody. He uses all of creation and am I not his creation? He uses women to speak. He used a woman named Rahab to save. 
He used Esther to speak to a king and change his mind. He used Ruth. He used Deborah to lead, to judge, to go into battle. He used Abigail to keep David from making a big, huge mistake. He used Lydia as a patron of Paul's. Mary, the woman at the well, became the first evangelist who led the men of Samaria to Christ. Priscilla, who risked her life, according to Paul, to teach Apollos, who would be one of the greatest preachers of all time. Phoebe, Junia, the apostle. He uses women. And maybe you're looking at me and thinking, I don't care about any of that because I don't think that that amounts to anything. Well, God can use nothing. He used the jawbone of an ash. He uses a pile of ashes. He used a plant for Jonah. He used a mustard seed or a grain of wheat that died. He uses withering grass and ant dry bones. He used a piece of bread and poured out wine. Jesus came into the world to paraphrase Sojourner Truth in her famous speech, Ain't I a Woman? From God and a woman, a man ain't have nothing to do with it. And then Jesus told the Pharisees that they had the law of Moses and still missed him because even though Moses was speaking about him, they were too busy looking at their law. And maybe I'm a fool for believing that God has called me to this. So then today I will gladly be one of the foolish things God uses to confound the wise. And he can use me if he chooses to, but my desire for all of you is that you would stay. Stay in the conversation. Take notes today. Listen for what God would have to say through you. If I'm wrong and you know I'm wrong, then it's because you know what is right, and I want you to write that down. I will spend my time with you if you will spend my time with me, your time with me. But I want you and me to point your ears and your heart toward God. So that's all I have to say to the elephant in the room. Now let's talk about Jesus. We have been in a series called The Good God. And we have been looking at just how amazing and good our God is. If you haven't had a chance to hear the whole series, I would suggest that you go back and listen to not just all of the sermons that you've heard here, but all of the ones that have been going on at Central Campus as well. Because our God is like no other, and we've been looking at what sets him apart from all the other gods in the world. That he's not a singular or solitary God looking to be worshipped or served only, but rather that he is a triune God, three persons in one. He is relational, desiring not that he has puppets to do his bidding, but people to love and to bless. And we learned that God is first and foremost a father, that before he is anything else, he is a father, that he is eternally a father, and that all things get filtered through that. He is, he is not just a ruler who happens to be a father, but he is a father who also rules. He's not omniscient apart from being a father. He is the eternal father, and Jesus is the eternal son. Now, it's hard sometimes for us to appreciate that because for the most part, typically our parents give us our first shaping of who God is. And so oftentimes our relationship with God begins and is, is inundated with God trying to unteach us what our parents taught us about who he is. 
And so I did a whole sermon on that at Central Campus when we kind of took a break from, from the series. And I just talked about just how difficult it is sometimes to make that move from being, from being um, God Father to really knowing what that truly means when he says a thing like that. We learn that he creates and all of his creation is a loving and relational act. And it's not as the poet James Weldon Johnson said, who I love the poem that he wrote called The Creation, but he gives us this interesting look at God that gives us the impression that maybe he wasn't quite as sure about God being triune as we are. He said, and God stepped out on space and he looked around the world and said, I'm lonely, I'll make me a world. And far as the eye of God could see, darkness covered everything blacker than a hundred midnights down in a cypress swamp. Then God smiled and light broke. And the darkness rolled up on one side and the light stood shining on the other. And God said, yeah, that's good. Then God reached out and took the light in his hands and God rolled the light around in his hands until he made the sun and he set the sun ablazing in the heaven. And so he goes through this and through this and through creation and through light and through animals. And it says, and God walked and where he trod, his footsteps hollowed the valleys out and bulged the mountain up. And he stopped and looked and saw the earth was hot and barren. And so he stepped out over the edge of the world and spat out the seven seas. And he goes on and on and on with the rainbows and the fishes and the fowls and the beasts. And then it says, God walked around and God looked around on all that he made. He looked at the sun and he looked at the moon and he looked at the little stars. He looked on this world with all its living things and God said, I'm lonely still. And then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river, he sat down with his head in his hands. God thought and thought till he thought. I'll make me a man. Up from the bed of the river, God scooped the clay, and by the bank of the river, he kneeled him down. And there the great God Almighty, who lit the sun and fixed the sky, who flung the stars to the farmost corner of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of of his hand, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay, till he shaped in his own image. Then into it he blew the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen and amen. And so I love this poem. It is one of my favorites, but it's interesting because it paints this picture of a God who was by himself and who was solitary and who was singular. And if you believe that that is the kind of God we serve, then we struggle to understand truly what he has done, and who he is. He loves as a father, and he loves the son, and their relationship with the Holy Spirit, an eternal outpouring of all that is good about them and between them. All creation, including us, is an expression of that love. So a couple of weeks ago, we saw how it pleased God that the relational father would give his glory to his son and to Christ. And today we're going to look at salvation through the lens of a singular versus a triune God. Because how we see and understand the gospel, the good news, depends on what we believe to be true about our God. 
because what we believe to be true about our need for a savior depends on how we have shaped our image of God. So if your view of God is that he's a singular being who just wants creation to serve him, then you think about the Garden of Eden and then you ask yourself, well, what went wrong? Well, what went wrong with that God who is singular, who just wants people to obey him and do what he says, is that they didn't do what he told them to do. They disobeyed, and because they disobeyed, he needed to send send Jesus so that he could correct their behavior. My grandmother used to say, if you knew better, you'd do better. But that cannot be all there is, can it? Because we can all do the right things for the wrong reasons, and we can all behave and still not know God, right? So it can't just be that they did the wrong things. And we can do the right things for the wrong reasons, can we not? So when we look at Luke 8:28 it says when he talking about a demon it says when he saw Jesus he cried out and fell at his feet shouting at the top of his voice what do you want with me Jesus son of the most high god i beg you don't torture me the demons believe and even worship AW Tozer says the devil is a better theologian than any of us and he is a devil still So if we understand God to be just a person who wanted us to obey and behave well, then salvation really isn't necessary. He could have just like scrapped the whole experiment and just gotten rid of us and then made him some people who would obey. Or he could have just tortured us and made us behave because we would be his puppets. But if we understand God to be triune, eternally loving, and being loved by the Son through the Spirit, then things change. And then the gospel and salvation actually make a different kind of sense. Let's look at Genesis 1 and 27. It says, So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female created he them. So when we look at this, it means that we are not just made in his image. We always think about being made in God's image in terms of being and doing, don't we? That that is the whole of who we are, our being and our doing. You'll hear people say, we're not just humans doing, we're humans being. We're human beings. And so when you look at that and you consider that, you're you're, you're missing a whole huge giant part of God and you're missing what it actually means to be made in the image of God. Because if we serve a triune God, if we serve a God that is three in one, and we serve a God who actually is, is the, we are the outpouring of all of that love, then to be made in the image of God is to be made to love and to be loved. Then to be made in the image of God means to be made to be relational. Then to be made in the image of God is not just about being and doing. Animals be and do. Demons, as I said before, they be and they do. But what it is that makes us in the image of God is that we are made to love and to be loved. And so then you ask yourself the question, well, then what happened in the garden? Because Adam and Eve did not stop being made in the image of God. They didn't stop loving. But they turned inward and they began to love themselves instead of God. Love by definition, is an outward-facing thing. 
Love begins in but moves out. And Adam and Eve made the decision to stop moving outward in loving God, and they moved in to loving themselves. And if you notice, just the whole entire temptation of the serpent in the garden was all about how do you love yourself? Yeah, I know God told you to do that thing, but what about you? If you eat this fruit, then you'll be like him. You will be like him. Let's focus on yourself. And so they turned inward and they sought they sought their own good and not another's. And when you think about 1 Corinthians 13, what does it say? That love seeks another's good and not its own. That love does not insist on its own way. That love is patient. So if God says don't eat from that tree, we don't eat from that tree. And so... Paul describes what that looks like because he tells Timothy about the last days in 1 Timothy. And it's interesting when you look at that passage, he says, what is that? Let's see. Let me read it from here. He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so what happened in the garden was a distortion of the image of God, that man and woman who were made in the image of God decided to trade that image for a distorted image of God. And isn't that all sin is? Our attempts to have the goodness and the good things of God without God? Isn't that what every sin actually is? Picking the fruit was the action, but the action was manifested because of a twisted desire. The fruit, it said, was pleasing to the eye. And so you took your eye off God, you put your love in yourself, and then when you look back at this fruit, it no longer is a thing that God said no. It now looks like a thing that you say yes. And I always love the fact that in a garden they said, not your will but mine be done. And many, many thousands of years later you see Jesus in a garden saying, not my will but yours be done. So that he could set things right again. James 1, 14 and 15 says that each person is tempted when he is dragged away by his own evil desire and enticed. And then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Sin flows from disordered desires and wrong loves. And evil desire is conceived in the heart and birthed into action. So changing our behavior cannot be the answer if we haven't changed our heart. First, we can be moral or religious and still express love for ourselves and not for God. So what then is the nature of the salvation that we need? What is the nature of the God you believe in? Because that will tell you the gospel that you end up getting. So the fall has to be more than just bad behavior. It's a deeper act of wrongdoing. The fall is not just somebody ate some fruit and oh no, 
now we have to correct everybody's behavior because of that, then what they've done is they've made everybody just behave badly. But rather the sin of the garden is the perverted love that rejected the lover who made us to love and be beloved. 1 John 4, 8 through 10 says, whoever does not love God does not know God because God is love. And this is how God loves. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is why we need to understand that we serve and love a triune, three-person-in-one God, out of whom everything is love. Because our rejection of our love for God, it doesn't lead God the Son, the Father, and the Spirit to reject us. But the astonishing thing is that it moves them toward us. It moves them toward us so that we can be loved and we can learn to love like him. In salvation, we see more clearly how good, how loving, how generous, how self-giving God is. And to be like him, we need to learn to love like him. That's why in Matthew 25, Jesus says, feed the hungry, look after the sick, visit the prisoner, receive the stranger. And he says, when you don't do these things, he says, depart from me. And then what does he say? He says, because I don't know you. What he's saying is, I don't see my father in you. I don't see the spirit in you. I don't see love in you. I don't recognize you as family. And so if we serve a triune God, then it's important to understand that salvation and the gospel is not just about us getting corrected in our behavior and God saving us here on earth, but rather it is about our transformation into the very image of God, that we become Jesus's brother and sister, that God says, I want you in on this whole love thing that we got going on. That's why I made you. And so salvation and the gospel becomes about that when you serve a triune God. And the cross, we see the depths and the seriousness of God's love and what it means to be his image bearers. 1 John 3 and 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so then John, the gospel, 3.16, takes on an even richer and deeper understanding, doesn't it? For God, the triune God, so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that love made God move? Do you believe that it made him give up? Do you believe that a Jesus who loved him went because he loved us? Do you believe that Jesus is the glory of that love? Because that's what it means. That is what John 3.16 means. 
Most of us hear that over and over and over again, but we don't know just how deep John 3.16 actually is. That God's desire to love us and to have us learn to love the way he loves is so important that he's willing to give up everything for it. And Jesus, who loves the Father, is willing to do the same. And so the gospel as we know it has to be understood from the standpoint of who God is. God wants us to know him. And not just informationally. When you think about it, Jesus says in John 17, he says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know you have sent me, talking about the disciples, and by extension us. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. When Jesus left, he said, I will not leave you orphans. My father and I will make our home in you. And so we have in us this ability, this privilege to love and be called the children of God. That doesn't happen with a singular, solitary, non-triune God. That doesn't happen with a God who simply wants to rule and be worshipped. When we think of the God Allah in the Quran, he talks about sending the word into the world, but what he means is the word is literally words that talk about him. And so for him, you can only know him by knowing about him. That would be like me taking your driver's license or your resume or a book that somebody wrote about you and then me saying, I know you. But God says, I want you to truly know me, not informationally, but intimately. And so the gospel is not a thing to be taken lightly when you consider that we don't serve a God who loves to rule. The fullness of the gospel says we serve a God who rules to love. That salvation is not for the sake of service, but for sonship and daughtership. Because if it's just words, if the word was in the beginning and the word was with God and the word was not God and it was just words, then Jesus just becomes the town crier telling us about God but not being able or having the power to show us how to be one with God like he is, how to be with God like he is. And then the gospel pretty much just becomes gossip. It's the last thing somebody said about God. Only a triune God makes the gospel make sense. A good God saves because he loves. He does not love just because he saves. And we love because like him, we have it in us to love. A solitary or a singular God is not driven by love. He cannot be. Because love by definition is outward facing, right? Love needs an object. And if Jesus is simply a created being by the singular solitary God, then that means before Jesus, he did not love. So he could not have been driven to create Jesus from love. So the gospel doesn't make sense without a triune God. It simply doesn't make sense. 
So when we look at this table and we look at this this bread and we look at this wine, symbols of Jesus dying on a cross for us, then we understand that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one, but that they are one love and that it is out of that love that we came to be. And then the gospel is a really good news as opposed to just news. The question that I would have for you today is whether or not you truly believe that the gospel is good news. Or is it just news for you? Because if the gospel is good news, if we truly believe that the gospel, that salvation came because a loving God who did not know what to do in any other way, that when we sinned, that the heart of this loving God reached out to us because he loved us, not to correct us, but to come to us because he cared. That's a whole different world we live in, isn't it? It's a whole different way to be. It's a whole different way to love. It's a whole different understanding. And so when we look at creation and we look at how how the world is made, the world is made to tell us who God is. The world talks about caring and cooperation and eternity and reproduction and all of these things and everlasting and everlasting. You see it in nature. You see it in your own bodies. We don't breathe simply because we want to. We breathe because the cells in our bodies need oxygen. And the cells cry out. And the blood listens. And the blood gets the oxygen from the lungs and delivers it to the cells. And the book of Exodus says that God moved when he heard the cries of his people. And so we literally have the story of the gospel written in our very DNA. That's the God we serve. Because he says there's no excuse in Romans for you to know that I am who I am and that I love the way I love. Because everything I made is an outpouring of that, is a description of that, is an illustration of that, is a picture of that. We as human beings are the only things who don't do what God made us to do. But in that is the beauty of love because love is nothing if it does not choose another. We were chosen by God and he wants us to choose one another. There is something special about this church. When I preached here one Pentecost Sunday, I told you that this church will be the leaven that leavens the entire lump of Imago Day. Because this church will understand what it looks like to truly love and to be the first church. That this church will be a church that can disagree on some stuff and say, but we're not leaving because we love. That's not common, but that is Christian. And so as you come up here and as you take this bread and as you drink this wine and as you listen to the prayers and the praises of the people who come up here and sing, remember who you are. 
you are men and women and children who are loved by a most high God who knows nothing else except to love. And his desire is that you would know him. His desire in dying on a cross and in saving all of us is that we would know that same kind of love. Let's pray. Lord, we are made in your image. We are made for your pleasure. Lord, we know that you delight over us. The word says that there is rejoicing in heaven when one soul comes to you. But we always have read that passage to think that it is the angels rejoicing, but the passage says there is rejoicing before the angels. And there is only one who is before the angels, and that is you. And so, Father, you rejoice when we come to you. You rejoice, you dance, you sing over us. And this morning, Lord, we want to sing back to you. We want to rejoice with you. We want to know you. Father, as we celebrate you today and as we remember who you are today, let us remember one another. Father, I just ask that you would make this a church that makes you smile always. Father, I, I thank you that you would not allow anyone or anything to divide your people on the essentials, on the gospel, on the love that you have for us, on the nature of who you are. Lord, this is your house. This house will be a house of prayer and a house of peace and a house of singing and a house of worship. Your people are here and they are together. And I thank you, Father, that you are in our midst. And I thank you, Christ, for all that you have done to express God's love for us. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you have empowered us all. In the name of Jesus, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.